This morning we finish a series on ancient marriages, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their marriages. And we're seeing how these ancient marriages can affect our lives today. Genesis chapter 29 here, we'll read verses 1 through 14 about Jacob and Rachel. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone was, there was a stone over the mouth of the well and it was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, my brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked them, is he well? Yes, he is, they said, and here comes his daughter Rachel with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It's not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheeps and take them back to pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. Let's pray this morning and add God to, ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, this morning we pray that you would give us insight into our own lives as we look at the life of one of your children, Jacob. A man with a, a rocky background and a life full of deceit and weirdness and yet also this intent to follow you. And, and we resonate with that. And some of us come in here with rocky pasts or rocky presents and sometimes we are scared we'll have a rocky future and yet we trust you that you are the God who guides us in all of our days. Pray that you would teach us and encourage us and confront us with aspects of our lives that we need to talk to you about today. We pray that you will do all these things as we look at your word and the story of Jacob together. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes God can change everything about your life in a moment. Have you ever had that happen before? You know, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, sometimes you don't know what's happening, but sometimes we have these moments in life where everything changes. I had a moment like that about 10 years ago. I was working here at the church, and I was at a conference down in L.A., and went for a walk, just minding my own business. And out of the blue, I felt like God was calling me to leave everything here, my family, my friends, my job, and to go away to graduate school in Bible and theology. It was a thought that I knew wasn't from me because I thought I'd be here forever and ever. And yet as I brought it back before the Lord and I said, are you serious? I felt like he was saying, yes. And so I told my wife, hey, I think this is what God is doing. And we packed up our stuff and, and moved to Texas. And, and then we came back later. 
There are times in life when God connects with us in a certain way. Maybe it's in a Bible reading. Maybe it's through circumstances. Maybe it's just out of the blue one day God shows up and, and you know that in that moment something's happening in your life and you'll never be same, the same again. Jacob had a moment kind of like this on his way to these eastern peoples. His story sounds a lot like that story of Isaac and Rebekah, doesn't it? Where the servant of Abraham comes and walks a thousand miles and shows up in his father's land and finds a bride, Rebekah, there. Isaac's on the journey, too, and on the way to these eastern people, I, or Jacob is falling asleep one night, and he has this vision from the Lord. This vision of a ladder coming down from heaven and angels going up and coming down from heaven to earth and heaven to earth and heaven to earth. And Jacob woke up and, and the Lord told him, Jacob, this is to be your dwelling place. I'm going to set this up as your city and I will dwell with you here. So go get your wife and then come back and you will be my people. Jacob had this moment where he knew he would never be the same again. And when we see him enter into the scene, talking to these shepherds at this well, he seems like a totally different person. If you've ever read the story of Jacob before, he's kind of a dirtbag before this. Do you know that? If you don't believe me, you should go back and read a few chapters tonight. Jacob starts out his life, his name Jacob means the deceiver. He deceives. And that's what he did. He has this time where he goes one day and steals his older brother Esau's birthright. You know that story? He's just making soup one day, and Esau comes in from the hunt and says, I'm starving, and give me a bowl of that stew. And Jacob says, yeah, sure, just uh, give me your birthright. And Esau's like, are you serious? He's like, yeah, just give me your birthright. Esau says, well, what good is my birthright if I'm dead? Give me the stew. Jacob says, swear to me that I get your birthright. And Esau's like, all right, dude. He shakes his hand and eats the stew and goes on his way. And then Jacob, when his father Isaac is dying, his mom, Rebecca, and him make this plan that he's going to not just steal the birthright, but the blessing that comes with the birthright from his older brother Esau. And so while Esau's out on the hunt trying to prepare a final meal for his dad, Isaac, Jacob sneaks into the room with some food. Food's always part of Jacob's deceit. And he sneaks into the room and he says, hey, dad, I know you can't see too well, but it's your son Esau, the older one, who gets everything. And Isaac says, are you sure you're Esau? And Jacob says, yeah, 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 it's me, it's me. Give me your blessing. So Isaac says, all right. And he gives him everything. His property, his land, his blessing, his sonship, his inheritance, all of it. He just dumps it on Jacob. And Esau comes back like, all right, dad, I'm ready for the blessing. And, and Isaac says, who are you? And he's like, I'm the older son. I'm the one who gets these things. He's like, I just gave it to some other guy. And yet they knew it was Jacob. Jacob stole it. He deceived, deceived, deceived. And so then in the middle of the desert, he has this vision. And then he walks to this well and he acts like he's squeaky clean. He waits. All these shepherds are there. And they say, hey, tell me about, tell me about your dad, Laban. Where's he at? Or tell me about Laban. He's like, oh, he's doing good. He's got a daughter. And Isaac's like, or Jacob says, a daughter? Where's she at? Like, well, she's coming right now. He's like, well, why don't you guys move along? Give me some private time with, with Rachel here. And 
They're like, well, we can't, you know, because we need to get to the well and it's still covered up. And, and so Jacob takes it upon himself to like move this huge stone and he like waters all these sheep and he serves Rachel and he gives her this water and he tends the flock of Laban. And then Rachel goes back and says, dad, I just met this guy and he says he's our relative. And, and so Laban comes back and says, yes, you are. You're, our fle- you're my flesh and blood. And it seems like Jacob has turned over a new leaf. Like this moment that he had with God has changed everything and now he is like a good guy. Sometimes when people turn over a new leaf, just like that, I get a little skeptical. Do you ever get that way? You know, it's hard. You want to give people the benefit of the doubt, but when you see someone who's a dirtbag for a long, long time, and then all of a sudden they like meet Jesus or something. Like, I don't know if I'm going to trust you. You know, I want to believe that transformation can just happen like that. You know, I once was lost and now I'm found. Anyone who's in Christ, he's a new creation. But the hard thing is we see people all the time who have this amazing experience with God. And you want to trust that it's real. But it's hard to believe it. Because a lot of people say they've been changed. And even if we do start giving the people the benefit of the doubt, the hard thing is we know that in our own lives, a lot of times we don't change that much. We have all these great plans. I'm going to be better next time. And then we fail. We come to the Lord and say, God, you need to take this thing away from my life. I keep messing everything up. And then we walk away and we do it again. And we wish that we can just have this moment with the Lord that changes everything. Sometimes we think we do. We have this amazing prayer time where we hear this great sermon or we're watching a movie or something and all of a sudden it's like we feel like God is saying, you're never going to struggle with that ever again. And you're like, I'm free. And then you fall. So you watch Jacob hoping that he's changed but kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Jacob sticks around for a month and works with Laban and tends his sheep. And at the end of the month, Laban comes to Jacob and says, okay, you've been here for a month. What can I give you? Is there anything of mine that you want? And we're like, "Uh uh-oh, here it comes. Jacob's going to deceive him. He's going to trick him somehow. How's he going to trick him, right? And and Jacob says, well, Laban, I, I would love to marry your daughter. He didn't really have anything to give him because he was fleeing his brother Esau who was trying to kill him. And so he showed up with nothing. He's like, I can't afford to give you any kind of bride price, this dowry to secure the hand and marriage of your daughter. So Laban, I would love to work for you for seven years. And at the end of seven years, if I've worked hard, if I proved myself, let, let me earn this, this dowry to pay so that I might have your younger daughter Rachel's hand in marriage. And, and Laban says, it sounds good to me. And so over the next seven years, we watch Jacob as he seems to make traction. You don't see any deceit in his life. You don't see any weirdness that he's doing. He seems like a good guy. He just keeps his head down. Seven years and he works and he works and he works. He builds Laban's flocks. He protects the sheep. He acts like one of Laban's own sons as a shepherd to these sheep here. And after seven years where Jacob has proved that he maybe has changed, Laban says, it's time to celebrate. And he throws a wedding feast goes all out because his daughter's getting married. And Jacob's been working seven years to marry this daughter. 
And Laban throws this party and, and does it right. And they party late at night. And then deep into the darkness of night, Laban comes to Jacob and says, You've earned it, man. Here's my daughter's hand in marriage. And he hands his daughter over to Jacob. And they go into the tent and become husband and wife and fall asleep. And then the sun comes up. Some of you have read this story before. <laughs> and Jacob opens his eyes. And the most painful pass or verse in scripture says, Behold, it was Leah. Jacob thinks, this isn't Rachel. Who's this woman in my bed? I married this woman last night. And he gets up and he runs to Laban and says, Laban, what are you doing? Didn't I agree to work for your daughter, Rachel? Didn't I get the name right? Rachel, not Leah. And Laban says, Jacob, in our family, it's the older child that gets the blessing because they have the birthright. And we're like, oh, man, he just got, like, told. Because Jacob did the same thing to his brother, and now it's coming back to him. Jacob wanted to get the younger daughter, but Laban says, no, 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 no. We're not going to let the younger daughter steal from the older daughter what is rightfully hers, the first hand in marriage, Jacob. And so seven years after cleaning up his act, Jacob gets right in his face what he did to Esau so many years earlier. Man, when we read that, it's like, yeah. That's <laughs> like the most beautiful irony, and it's kind of funny. Like, you picture him waking up like, uh-oh. And then you just feel that pain when Laban says, well, Leah's the oldest, and she has the right to the blessing and the birthright in that way. It's funny when it happens to Jacob. It's not as funny when it happens to us. Sometimes we feel like this. Have you ever had a moment where you feel like you've cleaned up your act and you're trying to do the right thing and trying to walk with the Lord and then stuff from your past just comes back and blindsides you? And imagine you, if you were like Jacob, maybe you were a terrible person before you became a Christian. And you had this wife and you cheated on her and she left you. And it, and it robbed you of like your dignity and you felt so terrible and you stumbled into church and you met these people here and you got connected and, and you met Jesus and you started cleaning up your life and, and for seven years you walked with the Lord and said, God, I'm turning over a new leaf and you meet another woman and she marries you and then in your marriage she cheats on you and leaves you. You just feel like God's just punching you in the face. God, didn't I work for seven years to prove to you that I'm a changed person? The hard reality is that a lot of times, stuff from our past sneaks back around and knocks us over in our future. It's really fun to have this great view of Christianity where you just meet Jesus and everything changes. You know, he forgives your sins, great. And maybe he cleans up all the mess he made in the past. Awesome. And all the stuff you used to struggle with, you don't struggle with anymore. And so you can just kind of walk confidently and say, God, I'm good now. I met Jesus. Everything's fixed. But the hard thing is, that's not real life. In real life, when you struggle with something before you meet Jesus, a lot of times you struggle with the same stuff after you meet Jesus. In real life, when you do stuff in your past, it haunts you in your future. And there are times that God just miraculously changes us, but not all the time. 
When we meet people who say, oh, I used to be a, a drug addict and a drunkard, and I met Jesus, and I've never wanted it ever again. And we think, that's amazing, but that's not me. If you talk to, a, to somebody who's a recovering addict, they'll say, this has been part of me my whole life. And I'm walking with Jesus now, but it just still seems like it's, it's always lurking. It's always here. We start to think about the way that it affects our lives. We start to feel for Jacob. Seven years down the road, he trips up and gets blindsided. So he says to Laban, what, what am I supposed to do? Laban says, well, finish this bridal week with Leah, and then I'll give you Rachel as your second bride, and then work seven years to pay it off. <laughs> and Jacob says, okay. And so after a week of being married to Leah, he marries Rachel and then starts the process of working for seven years to pay off this other sister. Seven years go past. And he's starting to feel like, okay, maybe it's time for me and Leah and Rachel and our kids to go start our own family. You know, they've gotten, having a lot of kids, a lot of drama in that family. You can read that story later. Son and son and son and son and daughter. It's like my family, except without the daughter. And son and son and son and son and son. <laughs> All these different wives and maidservants and, and Jacob's got this big household that's growing and Laban's flocks are growing and Jacob starts to feel like after he's paid the bridal price for Rachel, okay, it's time for us to spread our wings and fly and be our own family now. And so he goes to Laban and says, Laban, okay, it's time for us to leave. And Laban's like, oh, no, 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 don't leave. Just stay with us. Just stay with us. And, and so Jacob de designs an exit strategy. I know, oh, no is right. He starts breeding these spotted and speckled sheep to be like really uh, like strong and healthy and, and letting the ones that are weak kind of die. And then he takes all of the sheep that are pure and spotless and he says, okay, these are going to be Laban sheep and, and I'm going to have the speckled and spotted sheep. And then he goes to Laban and says, okay, Laban, here's the plan. I've worked for you for a long time now. I've earned my pay. I haven't complained. Now just let me go in peace. And I know it's hard, you don't know what you owe me, but I, I'm just going to take whatever are the speckled and spotted sheep and goats in your flock. He says, Laban, I'm an honest guy. His name means the deceiver. Laban, I'm an honest guy. Let my honesty be a testament to you. If you ever come and find any pure white goats or sheep in my flock, they're yours. They're stolen. Just let me take these. And Laban says, okay, sounds good. And then Laban steals all the speckled sheep and he runs away. So Jacob's like, are you serious? And he tells his wives and the maidservants and the kids, we're out of here. And so he gets all of his stuff together and they start walking into the wilderness. Like, let's go find a new home. And so they're sneaking out and then Laban finds out. So then Laban starts running after Jacob and he catches up to Jacob and says, what are you doing? And Jacob just has this like come to before Jesus meeting with Laban. And he says, Laban, I've slaved for you for 20 years. And I worked hard, and I did the right thing, and I never stole, and I treated your daughters right, and I raised up your flocks. Now please let me go in peace. And Laban comes back at him, and it becomes this awkward meeting where at the end of it, they kind of agreed to disagree and go on their way. They set up this boundary stone, and, and they decide, okay, I'm not going to step over this stone to come kill you, and you don't step over this stone to come kill me. And they turn their back on one another and walk away. And then one of Jacob's servants come to him and says, uh, Hey, Jacob, 
remember like 20 years ago uh, when you stole a bunch of stuff from your brother and then you fled the country because you thought he was about to kill you? Jacob's like, yeah. He's like, he's coming. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like we can't catch a break. And the hardest thing about the story is so often it's our story. And we start out on this good path with God and he changes some things and we try to do good and then we fall. And we get back up and then we fall. And then we try to do the best of what we've got, but we feel like just things keep coming at every side. And it's like God's not letting us have a break. And every time we step up and start to walk one direction, it's like he shoves us over. And so we get up in the other direction, it like pushes us over. And no matter where we turn, someone's trying to kill us or take us down. And we want to just stop before the Lord and say, what are you doing? God, wouldn't it be better if I never started following you? You know, before Jacob met Jesus or met God, at least he kind of was in control. I mean, he was a liar. He was a deceiver, but he got what he wanted. But now, ever since he met God on that road, life has been crazy for him. He does good, he gets evil. He does evil, he gets evil. He's sneaky, other people are sneaky. He does good, people are sneaky. And now his brother wants to kill him. He can't escape his past. So that night, Jacob hits his knees and starts to pray, and God shows up. And Jacob literally grabs a hold of God. That's not me using literally incorrectly. He grabs a hold of God and wrestles with God all night long. God just kind of walks up, puts on this human body, steps up to Jacob, and Jacob says, I know who you are. And he grabs him, and he wrestles him, and he says, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. I feel like I would lose that wrestling match. But Jacob is at the end of his rope. He's just holding on for dear life, and he's trying to just make God bless him. You have to bless me. You have to change what's happening here. This isn't working. And so finally in the morning, since God wins wrestling matches, God just goes, boop, and like, like wrenches Jacob's, uh, whatever this is called, his hip. And Jacob's like, whoa. And God looks at Jacob and says, you will no longer be Jacob. And he changes his name to Israel because he struggled with God and prevailed. I think the reason a lot of times that we don't really understand what God is doing in our lives is because we don't really understand the name change thing. A lot of times we feel like becoming a Christian means that God is changing our name from like alcoholic to sober. Or God is changing our name from like womanizer to super pure person who never thinks about lustful things. Or we think that God is changing our name from deadbeat dad to like world's best dad. Or like I have self-image issues to oh I love my body, right? We just feel like God is flipping over a new leaf. He's taken my sin and he turned it upside down and now I'm righteous. But God doesn't change Jacob's name from deceiver to truth teller. God changes Jacob's name from deceiver to struggles with God and prevails. Sometimes we feel like, ah, 
there's something not working in my faith because I feel like all I'm doing is struggling in my relationship with God. Sometimes struggles with God is your new name. Jacob invites God, doesn't really invite him, God just shows up in Jacob's life. And from that moment on, God and Jacob are wrestling through life together. You know, if your view of Christianity is that God just shows up and makes you perfect, that's probably not going to happen. That's not how, how many of you have that, has that happened with? Look around. And Christianity is God entering into your life and walking your life with you. And sometimes that means he's going to take you back to some of the things you've done in the past and say, look how you've hurt people. Have you ever met someone who, who's gone through recovery as an addict? They are some of the most humble people I've ever met. Because God has allowed them in their journey to sobriety to realize that so many things are out of their control and they've hurt so many people and they've been a whirlwind of dysfunction for so long that they can't trust themselves. All they can do is cling to him and realize that he's their only hope. That's how God takes an addict and makes them his addict, his recovering addict. Maybe sometimes you'll meet someone who moved from addict to sober in a day, and that's amazing and miraculous. But for most people, God takes you on a journey because he wants to grow you into the image of his son, Jesus. And when you go through a journey of sobriety, you learn humility like Jesus. And when you go through the pains and sufferings of this world, you learn what it means to suffer like Jesus. And when you feel like your life is out of control and all you can do is pray and cling to God, you learn what it means to abide in Jesus. God's plan for you is not to just make you perfect in a day. God's plan is to walk with you and to struggle alongside of you as he wrestles you into the person he wants you to be. The hero of the Jacob story is not Jacob. It's the God of Jacob. If you read the, the story that goes on from there, Jacob's always a deceiver. I mean, he meets Esau and God gives him favor. Esau doesn't kill him. And he says, Esau, it's been so great to talk to you. Let's go to that city together. And Esau's like, and he says, just go ahead, Esau, I'll catch up. Esau's like, I'm not falling for that. Jacob's like, no, just go ahead, just go ahead. Esau's like, let me leave a couple of my people with you. He's like, no, 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 I'll catch up. I'm a different guy, right? And Esau goes that way and Jacob's like, whoop. And he walks away. Jacob raises kids. His kids are deceivers. They sell their youngest brother, Joseph, into slavery and then tell Jacob that he was eaten by animals. And the whole story of Genesis culminates when all of these deceivers are standing before Joseph, who's, le- who's ruling over much of Egypt, staring down at them, giving them mercy and saying, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And we think of Jesus, who stepped into our world, and we put him up on the cross and blamed everyone else. And yet when he rose again, he didn't rise again to take us down. He rose again to give us life and mercy and grace. And the moral of the whole Bible is that when we mean things for evil, God does good. He brings grace. He brings mercy. He transforms us in his way, in his time in his journey. Hey, and we can cooperate with him and walk down a path towards righteousness, and and that's great. We cannot cooperate with him and do dumb things. But you know what the Bible says? 
that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. So whether you take the right path or the wrong path, if you are his, he's going to work it out for you. And many of you know that when you take the wrong path, it's the hard one. But these are the things that made the Apostle Paul cry, if God is for us, who can be against us? We see ourselves in the story, and the moral is don't be like Jacob. The moral is abide in Christ. Cling to him. Let him take you on the journey. Listen to his voice when he tells you to do the right thing. Ignore any other voice that tells you to do the wrong thing. But recognize that the God of Jacob, and the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac is the God that came down to this earth and died and rose on our behalf and said, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Let's pray together and ask God to give us the grace to abide in him. Father, I think of your word where the Apostle Peter tells us that when we suffer, that we shouldn't think that it's strange that this stuff's happening to us, but that we should rejoice that we participate in the sufferings of Christ so that his glory may be revealed in us. We look at the cross and the empty tomb and the story it holds of suffering that leads to future glory. We pray that we would have the grace in our lives to see our lives through that perspective. That when we suffer, we suffer like Jesus suffered and there's glory on the other side. Sometimes there's glory in this life, but there's always glory in eternal life. We pray that we would trust you, cling to you, that you would teach us as we make mistakes and as we do the right thing to be more like Jesus so that we can let his light shine around us. We pray that we would feel secure and safe in your hands, even when life is hard, like Jesus asleep on the boat in the middle of a storm, because we know that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And let us trust you, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who sent his son to die and rise that we might have life. Let us cling to him. Let us wrestle with him and never let go, because we know that only blessing can come from you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.